Father, being enlightened is good for us. Where there is light, the darkness fades away. But, Father, we know that Satan, the enemy, works to keep the darkness prevalent and tries to keep the light at bay. But we know your word is powerful and the darkness cannot hide. It dissolves when your word is given to us. We would ask that this morning, Lord, your word would enlighten, that it would show us the way, that we would understand what it is to really walk the Christian life. Father, as we resist that, because we know that the flesh and the spirit war against each other, we ask that you would assist us, bring us strength through your spirit to do this according to your will, to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder how many of us really desire to serve God. I mean, just all out. If you found a young man, uh, 18 to 19 years old, and he recognizes a young woman, that can cause brain damage in the young man. Once he finds the young woman, he will do things that that are just incredibly stupid in order to win the heart of the woman. And they are what you could call zealous to win a young woman's heart. That's just how they are. And I wonder if we have that same type of zeal to serve the Lord, where you're willing to do anything to find God and see what his word has to say, where you you just can't get enough of him. Now, just as the young man, if he captures the heart of the young woman and they live together, they're married, you know, for a long time they have children, they grow up, that the love never goes away, but there can be a fading, a dimming, just because of age, just because of being together. You move a little slower. The the love is still there. It's still great, but there is a little bit of fading that happens as a result. The same thing, I believe, happens in our relationship with God. We might start out just being completely zealous for God. I've recognized this in my own life. Uh, When I got saved, I was doing things like taking little uh, business card-sized cards to the Rolling Stones concerts and putting them on the windshields of cars down at San Diego Jack Murphy Stadium. And it says on it, if you die tonight, would you be ready to meet Jesus Christ? And that's all that it said. And I think we had a scripture on there. Going out and witnessing. Uh, Remember being in Ireland, witnessing over there and somebody getting saved on the the road, the Grafton Street. And and just being able to go to Bible studies and whatever God wanted. That's what I wanted to do. I I wanted to reach out and do that. And now it's kind of like getting out of bed. You tell yourself get up. It's time to get up. Come on. We, we need to do this. We have responsibilities that lie ahead. Or uh, when it comes to serving the Lord, you say, yeah, I really need to do this. These boxes are there. I need to fill these boxes for these kids. I know, but I was kind of hoping to take a nap that Sunday and maybe I'll have to put that nap off. But you know, I need to serve the Lord. So we have to convince ourselves more often than not as we get older, as we walk with the Lord for a long time. And so I would ask the question, do we have that same, ner- that same thirst to know Christ and him crucified. Now, especially as we get older, we have this tendency to seek after comfort. Our shoes change. Have you noticed that? 
Uh, for the women, the heels aren't so high. They're a little lower. For the guys, you know, they have some loafers and how much rubber padding is on the bottom if they work in some type of industrial job. We, we seek after that comfort, and all that's good to have that comfort. But Paul was talking about carrying around the death of Christ. And when we get inside this chapter to discover that, like, what does that mean exactly, to carry around the death of Christ? Well, it's a reminder to us who are believers, who are Christians. And when we hear such words, it's, it's so easy, once we reflect upon it, to be overcome with guilt. Like, I'm not doing enough, I need to be doing more, and there's condemnation that could set in, even though Romans says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we can easily focus on the failures that can leave us with a sense of hopelessness, like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be better at this, and why would God want to use me or use any one of you as that process runs its course. Well, God is gracious, and as often as we return to him, we ask him for strength and restoration, he provides it. He equips us all for ministry, uh, to minister to others. Even though I am in ministry, you guys all have your own particular ministry if you belong to Christ. And he equips you for that ministry. For instance, if you were an astronaut, they don't require you to buy your own spaceship. They give you the spaceship to go into space. The same thing with our service to Christ. When Christ gives us a task to do, we're inducted into the Lord's army, he equips us with whatever gift is necessary in order to perform that task. And I think sometimes we forget, or maybe we're never taught, that we have a particular gift that has been given to us by Christ, and we're supposed to exercise that gift in such a way, Paul talks about fanning it into flames. He told that to Timothy. And so he was supposed to practice at it. And if we don't practice at using our gift, well, we're not going to get very well. I recently saw a video of a guy. He wanted to start filming his progress in soccer. And so he tried to move around the soccer ball with his feet in different ways, and he was constantly losing it and having to go back after it. But then you would see him later on in these videos, and he mastered the art of carrying that ball with his feet and all the things he could do with that feet and how he could sink it in a basketball basket with no effort at all and, and how he could dribble it down the, the uh, field and how he could run it between his legs as he was running and keep it from the other opponent because he practiced at using that soccer ball. And I know that I've seen times where they can kick it and they can knock off a can that's sitting on something that's uh, 25 yards away with little or no effort whatsoever. And so God gives us those types of gifts where we can go out and perform the tasks that he has set before us, whether it's a teacher, gives you the gift of teaching or helps. He requires that we have certain skills in order to uh, perform the gift of helps, maybe a craftsmanship. You know how to work with tools, and you know what the names of those tools are. Uh, for instance, God gives us whatever we need to perform the ministry that is laid before us. Now, the question is, are we being faithful to fulfill that ministry he has gifted to us? Now, if you don't know what your particular ministry is, just ask him. God promises that if we seek after him with all our heart, he will let himself be found by us and he will give us direction. He will give us wisdom. 
And so Paul certainly is talking about the ministry that he has received, and he's received it according to God's mercy in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have received or we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Now, whenever you see therefore, Mike McIntosh always used to tell us when Patty and I were over at his church, he said, you always have to ask, what is it there for? There's a therefore. Well, what is it there for? He's summarizing something that went before. He's summarizing the first three chapters that are there. And in those three chapters, especially chapter three, he's making a defense for his ministry that God has given him a particular ministry and the people are the, the credential of that ministry, that they exist, they have been brought up in Christ, they have been given doctrine he says that this is why the ministry has, or the, the, that he is the one that has established his ministry because there were others that were saying, well, where are your letters? Remember that? We went through that in chapter 3. Where are your letters of recommendation? Those who would speak for you. <clears throat> and it simply pointed out to us that therefore, this therefore is that many are being saved, that righteousness is beginning to be established through this ministry that God has established through him. And so he goes, therefore, since this ministry has been established through God's mercy. Now, God's mercy established this ministry? Yeah, if you remember Paul, his name was formerly Saul. God changed his name to Paul. When he got saved on the road to Damascus, what happened was it, there was a light and he heard a voice and the people that were with him kind of heard the voice, didn't really understand what's going on and Jesus revealed himself to the apostle Paul there and from that point Paul stopped persecuting the church. He was going after Christians to bring them to the chief priests to have them persecuted or even killed or stoned for what they were doing and God reached out to him. He got saved immediately, then Ananias showed up Ananias was hesitant to go and pray for Paul because God had blinded him so that Ananias might come pray for him. He would re- have his eyesight restored. Once that took place, Ananias gave him a little bit of instruction. We don't know exactly what it was, but Paul remained in Damascus for a little while after that. And he started to go to the synagogues and make the case for Christ in the synagogues. And the Jews were baffled. They were uh, Befuddled, I guess is the word that could be used. And they got so angry at him, they made a plot to kill the Apostle Paul. And this was right from the beginning. Now, prior to that, Paul was a persecutor of the church. And if he got exactly what was due him, God would have judged him and killed him right on the spot. But he says, this ministry was given to me as a result of God's mercy. So he did not get what he deserved from this particular point. So God had given, if God had given him what he had deserved, he would have been dead. God would have judged him at that point. Instead, he received this mercy from the Lord. And then it goes on to talk about, we do not lose heart as a result of this. Well, why would he lose heart in his ministry? <clears throat> there are several things that cause us to lose heart. If you get a... Um, diagnosis from the doctor that something is wrong, uh, something that could be terminal, something that you have to wade through in getting treatment. Somebody could lose heart in that, certainly. Uh, But in this particular case, the reason he might lose heart was because of the opposition that he could receive, both from within the church and from without. Remember, I just talked about the letters. 
that Paul uh, was being requested, uh, where are your letters? And some were apparently saying that Paul didn't have any letters. And, of course, we know the answer to that. But there was opposition from within the church. And wherever Paul went, that opposition was there. We know it's in the book of Galatians. We know it's in the book of Corinthians. It's in the book of Hebrews where Paul was constantly being opposed by those inside the church, those that he brought the gospel to, those that had salvation as a result of his ministry, and others that came into those churches, they would start to oppose him. So that was inside. Then there was opposition from without. Remember, I was talking about Acts chapter 9 where Paul got saved. From without, it was the Jews who tried to kill the apostle Paul. At that time, his name was Saul. And the only way that he has escaped was he was put in a basket that was normally used, it is believed, for trash, and lowered through a hole in the wall of the city because the cities would have walls around them for protection. And he was laid or allowed to go down in this basket, a large basket, with a rope on it to escape from being killed at that point. And, of course, we know he spent over a dozen years after that just learning from the Lord directly what he needed to do but he received opposition inside the church and opposition outside the church. Now, if you're in any kind of ministry, if you're inside the church, people will oppose you for whatever reason. It's usually they want you to modify some behavior inside of a particular ministry. You should do it this way. This way would be more effective. Now, if it's a constructive criticism, maybe that should take place. But there are those who would say, no, I just want you to do it my way. You need to follow my example or my rules for how this goes. And so there's opposition inside the church. Or there's opposition also inside your own family if you're a believer. Have you ever gone home and tried to give the gospel to somebody in your own family that you knew was just a filthy, rotten, pagan sinner like all of us were? And the only reason that we're anything different is because of Christ living in us. But have you ever tried to do that? I encourage you, if you haven't done it lately, just try it. Just say, there's something I'd like to talk to you about. I want to make sure that you understand the gospel and what eternal security is and what eternal salvation is. And sit down and give them the gospel. Kind of wrap it up with, for if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you give them the gospel like that, see if there's opposition. Now, you'll probably get one of several reactions. One reaction would be, oh, okay, yeah, I'd like to pray that. That would be one. That's seldom, but that could be one. The other one is, you want to what? You want to talk to me about what? Why would you do that? You've already talked to me about that. Yeah, but I want to make sure that you really understand what's at stake here. I don't want to listen to that. And so you might get opposition in your own household. And sometimes it can be not violent, but it can certainly be uh, of the uh, track that is vehement in opposition. Um, I've mentioned this before. I went home when I got saved. I wanted my whole family to be saved. And I went to my oldest brother and I said, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to hell. And of course, he didn't receive that very well. Uh, Walked out of the house and my mom was trying to be a referee between us. And, you know, and I was trying to plead with him, look, I don't want you going to hell. And, And then I'm talking to him about the mark of the beast and he said, well, I just won't take the mark. And I said, no, you don't get it. It's not just not taking the mark. You have to accept Christ. And, and so there was opposition there, a uh, little less from my parents, but a uh, little more from my siblings. 
And so that, that opposition can come from there. Or what if you're at work? Have you ever tried to witness to somebody at work? Or maybe you're prohibited from doing so. That they don't want you to proselytize at work. And I, I can see that in the workplace. Some people get offended. Or have you just ever gone up to a total stranger and offered them the gospel? Now that, that's pretty exhilarating to do that. Uh, if you're able to, uh, just at some point, maybe you're in the park or you're somewhere else and you walk up to them and say, hey, my name is, I could say my name is Bill Bodker. I'm from Calvary Chapel Lakeside. I'd like to give you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you like to hear it? Something as simple as that. And then if they say yes, you go, well, did you understand what I just said? I want to give you the God. You, you get kind of nervous about it. But you're able to do that according to the gifts that God has given you and the power of the Spirit on the inside. The more you do it, the easier it is. But <clears throat> wherever Paul turned, wherever he ministered, he eventually ran into opposition. Now, I want to bring this a little closer to home for all of us. By an illustration, imagine running a business. <clears throat> in that business, first the federal government comes in and opposes you because you haven't followed their guidelines in setting up your business. You haven't gotten an employer identification number, something like that. You haven't filed your taxes properly because you really didn't know. And imagine that you comply with the government requirements, the federal government requirements, and then the state comes in and says, you haven't followed the guidelines for setting up your corporation. You need to set up your corporation properly. And several letters and phone calls go back and forth, and it takes hours of your time. Then imagine you comply with the state, and then the local governments come in and ask you why you haven't obtained a business license in each city that you are conducting your business in. And so you have at least those three layers of government coming in and saying, we need to have you comply with us. I know a guy in a trucking company, and he told me that there are 28 different agencies he has to be in compliance with in order to operate the trucking company. 28, and that is not the federal, state, and local governments that want their cut of everything. So imagine that, getting opposition from, if you're a trucker, 28 different entities plus the three that I've already mentioned. Imagine that you comply with every government agency and then your employees start having disagreements with you. You don't pay enough. I didn't get a break or maybe they took too long a break and you're talking to them about, you know, hey, a break is 10 minutes and you're taking 45 minutes for your break. What's the deal with that? So there becomes this tension in between and you get opposition from them. And imagine that you have worked out <laughs> the details with your employees and they do substandard work and your customers then begin to oppose you because you've sent out the employees. You, you see how all of this happens and you ask yourself, why am I doing this exactly? Why am I in business for myself when I've received so much opposition? And that's not even talking about the family. You work so much. Why are you working so much? Can't you work a little less? Or if a woman's out there working, you, I think you need to pick up, you, you forgot your child at daycare, you know, you forgot your child at uh, the school, you've been so busy and you've got wrapped up in the time. So why not just quit? Why, why not just say, I'm done? Well, some would say, because I have a house and I have stuff, and I have to take care of that stuff. I have the boat, and I have the skis, and I have the hang glider, and I have all of these different things I'm involved in, and I need to make sure I'm paying for those, and you endure the, the tribulation because of that. But you receive opposition from all of these different areas if you're in a business. Well, imagine the person who is encouraged, who has encouraged you to stay in business and says, it'll be worth it. Don't worry, you'll make it. 
you'll eventually succeed. Imagine all the benefits that you bring to your employees and that they will derive from you in keeping your business running. You provide for them an income. And imagine the good you will do for all the customers by the products and services you provide, making their life a little easier. Imagine on top of all that, there's a huge reward when you retire. Now you see the the business aspect, not talking about church and the spiritual aspect, just bringing it down to earth and the, the earthly aspect of that. Well, what if the person who mentored you to told and told you to stay in business, what if that was God? God came along and said, just stick with the ministry, even though you're going to have opposition on the inside, even though you're going to have opposition on the outside. Just think of all the people who will eventually benefit from what you do. Not just the one person that you raise up and mature, but those that they go on to encourage. It's like when we get to heaven, we'll receive our reward, right? Well, Paul's not done getting his reward. We are a result of Paul's ministry. We read his word, and so by the time all is said and done, by the time the church is done, by the time the, the millennial reign of Christ is done, all of that we have, will have received our reward in full for all time that goes on in perpetuity. And so the, the Lord says, just stick with it. It's hard. It's difficult. But there's a tremendous reward at the end of all of this, and that's what Paul had his eye on. He had his eye on the prize and even though it would be difficult for him to continue it's like as hebrew chapter 12 verse 2 says let us fix our eyes on jesus the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of god consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart just what paul said i do not lose heart because there is a reward at the end even scorning its shame and i looked up this word scorning and and how it pertains it's just like belittling ridiculing mocking rebuffing hating the shame like you mean nothing to me the shame that is there and you just continue i know why i'm doing this i know where i'm going i know what i'm supposed to do and nobody is going to stop me in that task even though our love may seem to diminish over time we still have focus on what we're supposed to be doing now when a woman gives birth and i've mentioned this before she gives birth it used to be you'd have these lamaze classes and they would tell you, have a focal point. Stay on target. You know, that type of, remember that from Star Wars? Stay on target. You have to look at your target. And they would tell women in Lamaze, they told Patty this, stay on target. Look at that focal point as you do your heat pants and everything else. And, and you're supposed to remain focused. So keep your eyes on the prize. The prize is Jesus Christ. So Paul does not lose heart and points out how the contrast Uh, or how this contrasts to others who minister, you know, the the ones who are inside the church that did it for nefarious reasons. He doesn't lose heart in doing what he's doing because he knows he's doing it for the right reasons. He's knowing that he knows that he's doing it for the sake of truth. But there are others who don't. He goes on in verse 2 and says, Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. And this is an example of those who would have been inside the church of Corinth and some of their habits, some of the things that they did. And I'm going to mention them again. 
renounce secret and shameful ways. Second, Paul and his fellow ministers did not use deception, which is trickery or sophistry or logically false arguments. Paul also and his fellow ministers did not distort the word of God. So the secret and shameful ways, they had gotten rid of all dishonesty, Paul and his companions, things which cause shame, uh, those things which wicked men do and which would be, uh, they would be ashamed if they were known. He's gotten rid of these carnal vices that are out there, which the Jews and their rabbis were notoriously guilty of committing. And even inside the church of Corinth, uh, it, it looks like it was taught that um, fornication was something that was acceptable, but it was not. This is a shameful way. Remember in Acts, or excuse me, First Corinthians chapter five, that the person who was caught in the sexual sin, uh, having an affair, that they were supposed to be kicked out of the church. And Paul says, "We have gotten rid of all of those kinds of behaviors." Apparently, there are some in the church that embrace those kinds of behaviors. And then Paul and his fellow ministers did not use deception. Now, they would try to get people to believe something that was not true in order to derive personal benefit. Now, the biggest example in my lifetime that I can think of is uh, Oral Roberts. Remember that $8 million? I mentioned this before. And this was back in April of 1987. He let it be known that he needed $8 million or the Lord was going to take him home. And he needed that $8 million to buttress up a medical ministry, medical missions ministry is what he wanted. And he told all of his supporters, $8 million bucks or I'm dead. And when I heard that at the time, I thought to myself, he's trying to deceive the people into believing that if they don't give money to him and his ministry, they will be responsible for his death. That's using deception. As far as I was concerned, let him die. There's no reason why you want to use deception to bring somebody in. If he's a believer in the Lord, wonderful, he'll be in glory. All the much better for him, and nobody else has to be dissuaded from following Christ because of the chicanery that he is involved in. And there's all kinds of things that are used like this. I can remember years ago, uh, Mr. Tilton saying, put your hand on the television screen. Remember the big analog screens on the televisions? And put your hand on the screen and God will bless you if you do that and then send in your money. And I, and I just, I would writhe in pain. And uh, who was the minister, the guy from Texas with the big hands, um, what's his name, who just rebuked the coronavirus that uh, said it would go away. And now uh, the news last week, we have more coronavirus cases in this country than we've ever had before. And that particular guy is worth $400 million. And it, uh, I think I mentioned that previously, but these guys, what are you doing with $400 million? You know, it's, anyhow, let me go on. So th that guy's a deceiver. These people are deceivers. So Paul and his fellow ministers did not distort the word of God in order to get what they want or derive personal benefit as well. For instance, they didn't change their doctrine to suit the people. <clears throat> now, there are certain sects of Christianity, and I believe you can be a believer inside that particular sect, any one of these sects. Like, for instance, Seventh-day Adventists don't believe that hell is forever. 
even though the Bible says in at least two places, hell is forever. It doesn't end. We're conscious, those who go to hell, they are conscious, forever, just like heaven is forever. God will not destroy the individuals who have been created in the image of God, and being created in the image of God makes us eternal. We had a beginning unlike God, but we will exist forever. And so some people change that to make the message a little more agreeable. Or they don't tell somebody about sin. Or they say fornication is okay. Or they say Jesus was not human and Jesus was not divine. And the festivals in the Old Testament need to be followed. They need to be kept even though they don't mean we get saved. But they need to be kept. All of these are false doctrines that people would adhere to. That was These doctrines were big, especially during the time of... Uh, Jesus right afterwards during the time of Paul. And he goes on to say, these are the characteristics of those who would be the false teachers. But he says, on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So he spoke the truth. He did not mince words. He spoke plainly to the people so that everyone could judge in their own hearts if what Paul said was true. Now, as adults, we can kind of tell if there's a scam going on. Not always, but we can tell. Somebody can be really good at it and deceive us. You ever listen to a telemarketer? They're trying to convince you that you need something that you actually don't want, and they want to put you over the finish line and make you spend the money that you really don't want to spend. And this happens all the time. But... Normally, if I have somebody come to the door, they, they want to sell me a solar system or a new roof or um, landscaping and, uh, you know, all of these different things. I, I'll usually talk to them for a minute. I, I'll be courteous, but then I just say, you know, I'm done. And then they'll start, but you know. And I said, no, I'm done. But, but listen, you could, ri- no, I'm done. I know what they're trying to do. I know how they're trying to keep the conversation. It's like you go to uh, buy a car. They have statistics that show if you leave the lot, you're not going to come back and buy the car. So their goal is to keep you on the lot, get you inside, give you some refreshment, whatever they have to do to coerce you into buying a car that you may not be ready to buy. And so they, they try to change your mind and deceive you in several ways and use flattery. Oh, you look good today. Did I say that? Yeah, you look good. And and they want you to feel good about the experience, to trick you into buying the car, not really speaking the truth, but what only will bring them personal benefit. That's what they do. Now, some salesmen are great. They tell the truth and they're fantastic at it. That's not to say that all salesmen are bad. But that's what happens out there. And as adults, we can usually pick it out. We can usually tell when we're being taken advantage of. But a child cannot make that type of distinction. If you had a child that was five or six years old and you said, you know what, I went to the zoo today and there was a pink elephant with wings, the child's going to go, really? And she, yeah, you should have seen it flew around and I was able to ride on it all the way around. No, I want to go. That's how a child thinks. But an adult, we're supposed to be able to discern what is truth and what is error. And 
when we get to be an adult, we have this thing called a conscience. Now, most kids, their conscience isn't fully developed. They'll steal toys from each other. They'll hit each other. They'll, you know, fight, that type of thing. It, it's, a, it's a common occurrence. Uh, my grandson, he's going to be turning uh, a year here in November, and I can't wait till the second birthday, the terrible twos, so to speak, where he just wants to do what he wants to do. We, we have this thing uh, in our household. We have a, a fireplace, you know, the rack, the tools that are on there. He wants to go over and grab them, you know, and it, it could be dangerous. They could fall over. And so Patty's started to say, uh-uh-uh. And so he goes over and he looks at her and reaches for them. And she, uh-uh, you know, tells him not to do that. And now he's getting to where he walks over there and goes, uh-uh. And then he went, he's learning what to do. He's learning to say no to those things that would cause him harm. But as he gets older, he'll probably just go up and grab it and just look at her. You know, like, like what are you going to do? Are you going to challenge me? That's where the evil comes up from within because we have this evil nature which is there. So as adults, we should have actually acquired the ability to discern between truth and error. And this is why Paul appeals to every man's conscience. We have the ability to think critically with discernment and we do so without letting emotion get in the way. We're, we're supposed to be able to just look at something and say, like for instance with Paul, is Paul telling the truth? If he's telling the truth, we can trust what he's saying if it's come to fruition that we have established everything. We don't believe something just because it feels right or because we want to. Now that's a common error, those who appeal to emotion. Uh, for instance, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, may God rest her soul, uh, the Supreme Court Justice, which is there. And then there's ACB, who is supposed to be coming in and, and taking her place. And the objection is her dying wish was that in the last year of her uh, tenure as a Supreme Court Justice, that the president wouldn't appoint somebody, would let it go to the next president, whoever that was. And, of course, that's hearsay. It hasn't been established. But it was an appeal to emotion. Just give, I think it was AOC that said, just give this woman her last dying wish, would you? And that's appealing to emotion. A president is president for four years. And so that's an appeal to emotion. And if we allow ourselves to be swayed by emotion, we will make mistakes all the time. But Paul says, I'm speaking plainly, and I'm speaking the truth plainly. And we can discern what the truth is as adults. And so we are basically being encouraged to stop thinking like little children, start to use critical thinking like an adult when it comes to truth. This is also something we passed up in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. It says, Brothers, stop thinking like children in regards to evil be infants, but in your thinking be adults. So when you hear any message from any ministry whatsoever, we are to listen to it with discernment. Is this true? Is this not true? And how do we rightly discern what truth is? You have to know the word. If you know the word, you know the truth. If you hear something that is not comporting with the, what the truth is, you can toss it out. You've heard before, bank tellers, they have them work with money, so they immediately recognize when time comes to work with the public what is counterfeit. 
because they've worked with it so much they can understand what is counterfeit. So Paul was encouraging the people in the Corinth to judge if what he taught was full of truth or if it was full of error. Then, verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this idea of the gospel being veiled. Now say light comes into a room and you throw a cloak over whatever it is that is a person that's there. They cannot see the light if it's a deep, dark cloak that's covering them if they're sitting or if they're lying on the ground. That light does not bring, or it brings discernment, but they do not have access to that light. So Satan blocks the light of the gospel where they cannot see or recognize the glory of Christ who is God. This does not mean that Satan is the one solely responsible for individuals refusing salvation. Now, if somebody is given to rejecting the gospel, Satan will come along and say, yeah, that's right, reject the gospel. And he starts to veil over the person who might understand what the gospel is. Let me read this to you, John chapter 3, verse 19. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly what that what he has done has been done through God. So people don't want to come to the gospel, the saving grace of Jesus Christ, because they love their deeds more than they love Christ. And then Satan comes along and says, let me help you with that unbelief. And Satan will do that in all sorts of areas, but especially when it comes to the gospel. So Satan has veiled or hidden from those who are perishing the gospel because of the desire of the individual. So he just assists in that. Verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Christ or for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So he's simply saying that God illuminated in our hearts, and it's not the pulsating heart, it's the heart of understanding where we have the seat of comprehension. God opened that up because each one of us, if left to our own devices, we would never turn towards God, as Scripture says. And God comes along, and he opens that up. He says, I'm here, and I want you to know me. And that's what Paul is saying here. He had this light shine out of darkness and made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That's what God does to anybody who gets saved. The people who don't get saved, they at first resist it. Satan comes along, throws a cloak over it, and then they are done. They perish. But those who say, well, I'd like to know more about this. You know, I've, I don't know what the story is for you, but I can remember asking uh, at the preteen years, 
why my grandmother died. Why? I didn't understand. I was old enough to comprehend, and she was wonderful. She lived with us, and she had her Bible, and she had her radio with J. Vernon McGee on it, and she had her Salem cigarettes smoking the whole time in that chair. And I remember that about her, and she never wore pants because it says in the Old Testament that a woman is not to be found in the attire of a man. So she always had a dress on. You know, she had her little behaviors, but she was a believer in God. And I have her Bible, and in her Bible, you know, it's just all marked up. And, and I didn't understand why she died. I was grappling with death at that point. And so I, I can remember sitting in my room, just turning to God and saying, Why? What's the point if we just live and then we all die? And I can remember calling out to God, even though I really didn't know God, my parents knew God or my mom did and and my grandmother did and my other grandmother as well and so I asked him well God reached back out to me and he said this is why I got the gospel after that and I was a reluctant gospel adherent I, I heard the gospel at least three times that I can remember and I always told myself yeah I believe that already so what you know but eventually I said no this is this is it. He gave me the light of understanding on the inside because I wanted to know. I didn't want it hidden from me. And perhaps with you, it's the same thing. You wanted to know what this salvation thing is all What? Who is God and who is Jesus Christ? Is he really God in human form? And God respects that. He goes, okay, you want to know? I'm going to tell you. I'm going to bring the people in your life to give you this information so that you might be saved or you can choose to reject it. But he gives us the information. And that's the way God works. If we seek after him, he lets us know. We run into so many problems and troubles because we don't seek after God. We just operate on a whim. Yeah, I think this would be good. And we go in a particular direction or we we adhere to a particular belief. My aunt... Of course, uh, my mom and her two sisters, they were all raised in the church. And my aunt, she told me one day that, yeah, I believe in reincarnation. And I go, what? Reincarnation? Yeah, I just believe in reincarnation. But she was raised in the church. I go, where's that exactly? Well, you know, I just believe it. And she was operating on emotion that God gives us several chances over and over and over. What do you go to a way station and wait there for your ticket number to be called? And then you go, okay, I'm going to be born again. Not figuratively, but literally. And I had a hard time with that. But anyhow, we, we believe these things, but God gives us the light of understanding. We can think as adults. We have the truth of the gospel. We have the truth of the word. We can look into it and not be easily deceived. And that's what Paul's saying about his ministry. I did all these things. You guys saw it. I spoke to you plainly. This is the gospel, pure and unadulterated. And you can trust it. You can follow it. So that's what Paul's saying, or he's saying here, in opposition to those who would teach things which are different. So Paul goes on to say that Christ is preached, then not of ourselves. In other words, he didn't have any particular prowess, although he was an intelligent man, he was able to speak as well. But also, he says, and we are your servants in this, and it's for the sake of Christ. Now, somebody who's looking to rise the ladder of success doesn't say that. Doesn't say, I'm doing this for God. We're not doing it for ourselves. 
We are going to become your servants, your bond servants, and not for anyone's sakes but God. And so whatever I've gained in this life, I can't loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says that in another place. And so somebody who is looking to gain something, people inside the church, uh, there are individual ministers inside of ministries or inside uh, the pulpit ministry. They're looking to raise themselves up. Not that selling books is bad or anything like that, but they're looking to raise themselves up. And God says, no, it's not for the individual It's for glorifying Christ. So verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So the power to transform the lives of the people is not in the vessels themselves that God sends. Like, for instance, if somebody gets saved, it's not because of the prowess of the individual. It's not because of their intelligence. It's because of God working in them. The power to transform the lives of people is contained inside the vessel. We are the vessel. It's inside. And he says these jars of clay. You know, Genesis says that we're made out of dirt. Snips and snails and puppy dog tails. You know, that's, that's what we're made of. We're made of the clay. And Paul is saying that God has placed his spirit in that jar of clay. There's something very valuable inside. So Paul is diminishing himself and raising up God. And Paul chose to emphasize his inadequacy while others will focus on the outward accomplishments. Now what I'm going to do is finish up right here and we'll continue next time after verse 7. But it's this idea that there is a truth out there and we don't want to be deceived deceived by what is the falsehood that people would preach. We want to know who is genuine, who is looking for financial gain as a minister. Well, they're not a genuine minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not following after Paul and his example that he told everyone to follow. We are supposed to understand that truth is contained in the word in our own consciousness, bear witness to whatever that truth is. We can understand when we're being deceived and not being deceived. And Paul encouraged the Corinthian believers not to be like children anymore in their understanding to be sober. Now with all of these things, if we come to the realization of what the gospel is all about and why it was given to us, we understand we're supposed to go to others. We're supposed to tell others. And I would leave you with that encouragement again. Go home and give the gospel to somebody. See how it happens. And remember, Paul had opposition inside and outside. See how it turns out. You never know. Somebody might get saved. And God can give you the courage to do it. I'm sure you have somebody in mind right now that you could go tell the gospel to. And so with God's help, we will do and we will act just as Paul acted and as Paul did. He understood what the truth was. He acted in a sincere fashion, and there was no hypocrisy in that whatsoever. May we have the same type of purity in our hearts when it comes to serving Christ and making sure others get the gospel. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We understand that uh, we have direction that has been given to us. We have our orders. We have a commission that has been given to us, even the Great Commission. Father, we are vessels of clay. We are weak, but we understand you can strengthen us. We can be hard-pressed on every side, but we are not destroyed. We are not crushed. Father, for those who are struggling in this life to follow after you with their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, 
I pray that your grace would be evident, that you would bear them up, you would restore them, you would forgive sin, and you would cause them to be filled with joy as they continue to do your will in your way. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen.